Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us. We're now about to hit sound bites. Our weekly look at food, agriculture, and future, and our future here on the Mark Steiner Show, uh, right here on your source for cool jazz and more. W E A A eighty eight point nine FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL ninety point seven FM. And uh, we are now about to have a conversation with Charles Benbrook, who is co-author of a new report entitled GMOs, Herbicides, and Public Health that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. He is an adjunct faculty member at Washington State University and a farmer and has joined us before. Uh, and Charles, welcome. Good to have you back. Uh, thank you, Mark. So before we get into this piece that you that you did, and it's, it's fascinating given the conversations that we had recently around GMOs, let me talk a bit about where you're living and what's going on. You, you live up in, in the grizzly bear complex, right, where the, where the fire is taking place? Yes. Uh, in Washington in, State. In, uh, well, we live in the very northeast corner of uh, Oregon. The uh, Oregon-Washington state line is about uh, six miles to the north, and uh, our property basically forms the one of the southern edges of this um, massive fire that's uh, burning on, on about 70,000 acres um, uh, in Northeast Oregon and and uh, southeastern Washington. And so, uh, there's an interesting article I was reading um, uh, about that um, in the Olympian uh, that the Northwest is not is not immune to climate change. Well, heavens no, and uh, nor nor are uh, um, Baltimoreans. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but because this is, I mean, because I mean, the, what's happening up there now is almost unprecedented in terms of the weather. Well, it's. Uh, I think this will go down in history as one of the most severe fire seasons in the West. Uh, there's over 70 active fires, and this fire, the fire marshal came by yesterday and and told us that this fire could still be uh, hot in certain places in January. It's. Uh, it'll take the the winter snows to to finally put it out, and it's moved into this beautiful, uh, pristine um, area of uh, timber. Where there, there's really no roads and 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 no houses, and and he said they're they're just going to let it burn. It's a very difficult ter- terrain to get uh, personnel into, and um, you know, so it, it that that's probably going to burn until it, you know the the heavy rains in the in the late uh, late fall or, or early winter come. We had 740 firefighters in our little tiny town. Uh, uh, half a mile um, uh, downriver from me. It was really a, a just a remarkable um, uh, coming together of resources. There are firefighters from Canada, from Australia, from Florida that have been flown into not just this fire, but to, to man these other fires uh, uh, throughout the, the western U.S. That's wild. I'm glad you all are okay. Um... And I was kind of pretty, pretty um, terrifying. So I'm glad you all are good. Um, but I, let, let me let me come back to the article you wrote, perspective here: GMOs, herbicides, and public health that you did with uh, uh, the physician uh, Philip uh, Landrigan. And what's interesting is um, we did a debate discussion just a couple of weeks back on GMOs uh, because of an article written by um, William uh, Selton, who was on our show in Slate, called "Unhealthy Fixation." The war against genetically modified organisms is full of fear-mongering errors, fraud, and labeling them will not make you safer. And and one of the pieces in that conversation was that he was saying how the World Health Organization, American Medical Association, National Academy of Sciences, American Association of the Advancement of Science, uh, declare there's no good evidence that GMOs are unsafe. Hundreds of studies back that hundreds of studies back that up that conclusion. Um, and and uh, so his basic argument was there's no connection here to to disease and our health and GMOs. And I pushed him on that, but but I want that. But your but your article in GMO, I mean in in New England Journal of Medicine, um, kind of really pushes that envelope. Well, um, I'm I'm uh, well aware of the the piece that uh, uh, Salatin wrote in in Slate, and uh, you know to really go through all the points and. Uh, you know, would w- take far more than... Well, we'll do that another day for a longer show, and, and we will, and maybe have him on and have this debate happen again but, with you in it. So, um, You know, what Dr. Landrigan and I uh, felt important to bring to the attention to the medical community is that um, a number of the herbicides that are uh, in- intimately linked to genetically engineered foods 
and in fact, uh, herbicides that uh, have uh, had and will continue to have vastly expanded use because they are part of uh, genetic engineering technology are either probable human carcinogens or, or uh, possible human carcinogens. In the, in the case of corn, for example, glyphosate herbicide or Roundup, uh, which we address in the, in the article, as right. well as uh, a herb, an old herbicide called 2,4-D, which is part of a new genetically engineered uh, set of uh, crop varieties, uh, are you know have have recently been classified by the International Agency for Research on Cancer as uh, a probable human carcinogen in the case of glyphosate and possible in the case of 2,4-D and a third corn herbicide, which isn't involved in <coughs> genetically engineered varieties, but is uh, by volume, the third most uh, heavily applied was just implicated as a cause of cancer in uh, a, a paper published in, a, in another journal about a week ago. So, you know, we've got, we, we have the American farmer, three of the top herbicides being used on uh, almost 90 uh, million acres of land, which is not quite one in three acres of cropland in the country. Uh, are they, the farmers are, are applying two or three possibly cancer-causing herbicides, many of which uh, show up in drinking water and even occasionally in food. And we felt it important to bring to the attention of the medical community that, that the, this, the genetic engineering technology has really put farmers, has sort of enticed farmers onto a herbicide treadmill, and they're having to spray now more and more and more to deal with the um, genetically resistant weeds that uh, this technology has uh, uh, triggered. One of the things that strikes me about your article, and then I was going to reread um, uh, Salatin's piece and some other pieces, is that when people say that when the argument is made that, that nothing is proven GMOs are dangerous to our health, the, the big reason is, it seems, I was trying to make the argument with them and it, it, it ask you this from reading your piece, is that because the, the money has not been invested in the studies to show that, to even begin to test it. So we don't know what, the, what might be happening. That's the issue, isn't it? Oh, it, well, it's certainly one of the big issues. And Lord knows, I hope and, and all scientists that, that don't buy into this mythology that uh, the debate over the safety of GE food is settled, uh, we all hope people that feel that way are correct, but we simply are um, <clears throat> trying to point to how shallow the science base. Right now, for example, there's three or four major genetically engineered corn varieties sold by the, 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 the four leading companies that have most of the market share. The same is true in, in the case of soybeans. There's three or four genetically engineered traits. If you go to the open public literature and look for independent science on these new modern varieties, you will find essentially none. No studies. None. There have been studies done on some of the older varieties by independent scientists, but there, there is um, a, a huge dose and leap of faith behind people that conclude, as Salatin has, that there's no health risk uh, associated with these technologies. Uh, I agree that there has not been uh, epidemiological studies or, or lab studies that, that point to uh, a, a significant uh, uh, proven risk. Uh, I, I, and, and thank God that's the case because you know, these technologies are embedded in the, the two uh, foods, the corn and soybeans, that are the foundation of the American food supply. But as a as a person, you know, I'm an expert in federal regulatory policy, and I have never seen in my career a more significant uh, and possibly risky uh, technology receive so little careful, independent uh, attention by the government. And it, it dates back to the the Reagan administration when um, the government decided that that gen the genetic engineering of food was a cutting edge technology. The U.S. had a lead in it. Uh, the government deemed it safe and said, let's go sell this all around the world. And basically, the U.S. government is, is so committed now to this uh, promoting the, the use of this technology and defending it that uh, it, it really, there's, there's, there's almost no 
you know, independent science being done. And, and it's, a, it's a real problem because it, it's likely that there are probably a few problems when you start to genetically engineer uh, crops grown on, on such a, a wide swath of the of American cropland base. You, know, you, you would expect there to be some issues. And, and the notion that genetic engineering is the first agricultural technology ever discovered that has no unanticipated side effects, it, it's just silliness. So, I mean, it, 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 you also said in this article that, that um, uh, the, 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 about the, the, the risk assessments give little consideration to potential health effects on, on, on children and, and women especially, and that contravening, you have one line here that says that contravenes federal pesticide law. So, I mean, that, and I tried to raise the issue again and was kind of shot down, but, but that's, this is where the parts of government are not respond, talking to one another. Yeah. Right? Well, let me, let me help you and your listeners understand what's behind that. In 1996, Congress passed unanimously, both in the House and the Senate, and uh, a few days later, President Clinton signed the Food Quality Protection Act. This was a, a, a highly controversial piece of legislation that was evolving for 15 years through the Congress, but finally reached a point where... Uh, Democrats and Republicans came together and said, we have to do something to address the unique risks posed by pesticide exposure to pregnant women and their developing child and infants and children. Um, these are the, the stages of life uh, when people are vastly more vulnerable to um, adverse effects from pesticides, you know, probably at least 100 times more vulnerable, if not uh, a thousand or even higher. So, in in 1996, the the Congress changed the law to direct the Environmental Protection Agency to add an extra margin of safety into its evaluation of any pesticide that potentially could pose developmental risks uh, to a, a woman's child or an infant's or child after birth. And we, Dr. Landrigan and I, were heavily involved in the crafting of that legislation. Dr. Landrigan was the chairman of a 1993 National Academy of Science report, which basically laid out the scientific arguments for that law. And, and Dr. Landrigan testified before Congress multiple times, and both he and I thought it was one of the, the best pieces of legislation, environmental legislation, passed in, in 50 years. And we, we are trying now to um, raise the need for the EPA to use the authority in that historic act to look at the unique risks posed by these genetically engineered uh, crops and related pesticides. And that, that was uh, well, what one of the purposes of writing the article. And, and I, I think it's important to say here, before we conclude and, and talk about how you, the, your proposals at the end of this piece, um, that and, and very logically saying this is not like an all-out assault saying no to anything genetically modified. We have to understand as a society, as a culture, as a people, as science, what the effects could be on our using it. Just like we didn't do that with DDT and what DDT did to us when we sprayed that all over our crops and did to the eagle population and other things. We don't know what, what that the argument is. We don't really understand what the long-term consequences for our health and the environment uh, that that could be affected because of our use of genetically modified organisms and the pesticides and herbicides used to maintain them. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's it in a nutshell. And and you know we uh, we really uh, want to see a, a a bit more humility uh, from from those who are so convinced this uh, this technology and its related pesticides. Are safe because uh, we we not only don't see the evidence of that, and we also see a number of troubling signs in the literature from independent scientists that unfortunately are beginning to document in areas where the genetically engineered crops have been planted very heavily, and these herbicides have been sprayed uh, in some in some countries, for example, Brazil, uh, at a, at about three times the rate uh, common in in the U.S. and Regrettably, there there are some pretty clear signs that uh, the human population is is suffering uh, uh, some increased disease risk and and developmental uh, problems in in their children. Um, 
as a result of, of this ramping up of herbicide use. So, Charles, as, as we close, I'll make the three recommendations are pretty simple that you give at the end of your article about the, the EPA, the National Toxicology Program, uh, and labeling. So just quickly kind of talk about what you're recommending at the end of this article. Sure. Um, the EPA has recently registered a combination of, of glyphosate, a probable human carcinogen, and 2,4-D, a possible human carcinogen, to apply uh, at up to three pounds per acre on a new kind of uh, genetically engineered corn. And, and we think that the agency did not evaluate fully the risk for uh, uh, developmental effects and, and birth defects. So we're asking them to pull back on that approval and uh, go a bit more slow in, in uh, allowing farmers to accelerate the speed of this herbicide treadmill. The second thing we're calling for is for the, the National Toxicology Program, the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, to independently evaluate the safety of these technologies and their associated herbicides uh, with, with work funded by the government, carried out by scientists that don't have a dog in this uh, increasingly uh, vicious fight that's going on over this technology. And third, we feel it's very important for the, the, the FDA, the Congress, uh, and the federal government to adopt a mandatory GE food labeling program so that people and doctors and epidemiologists and, and the public health community have at least a, a, a fighting chance at recognizing um, an increase, for example, in food allergies or uh, uh, reproductive problems that might be associated with consumption of a genetically engineered food. When, when food is not labeled, nobody knows if they had genetically engineered sweet corn for lunch. Uh, and when that's the case, it, it, it's like uh, looking for a needle in a haystack with a heavy glove on. Well, I, I really appreciate this article, and I'm looking forward to our continued conversations here on, uh, on Sound Bites and the Mark Steiner Show as we look at GMOs in greater depth and having you back on, Charles Benbrook, to uh, have those conversations with us in debate and in conversation. Uh, I want to thank you so much for the article, GMOs, Herbicides, and Public Health, in the New England Journal of Medicine, and we will put that up on our website. Charles, once again, thank you for getting up early, and uh, hope your home stays safe, and thanks so much for joining us here. Okay. Bye-bye. My pleasure. On a way to break, I want to remind you the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information at W www.mecu.com. And coming up, when we return to Sound Bites on the Mark Steiner Show, we hear about a meeting of oyster farmers that took place at the University of Maryland Hornpoint Laboratory. The oyster industry in our region has been booming, but some oyster farmers are complaining about the amount of red tape and regulation they have to deal with. We'll hear from Baltimore Sun's Tim Wheeler, who has been covering the story, and two oyster farmers. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on the Mark Steiner Show, produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community in Baltimore, and also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Uh, and uh, please join us here at 410-319-8888. Tweet us at Mark Steiner. Comment on the Mark Steiner Show's Facebook page or send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. Uh, we all love our oysters. We love to eat them, but there are a lot of issues around this, and we're going to find out what's going on. Tim Wheeler joins us, reporter for Be More Green, the Baltimore Sun's environmental blog. Donald Webster joins us, region extension specialist at the University of Maryland Y Research and Education Center, chairman of the Aquaculture Coordinating Council and Maryland Oyster Advisory Commission, and Johnny Shockley, who is a third-generation waterman born and raised on Hooper's Island. Uh, and after harvesting blue crabs, oysters, and fish in the Chesapeake Bay for years, he became interested in oyster aquaculture, aquaculture, excuse me, and created Hooper Island's Oyster Aquaculture Company with Ricky Fitzhugh in 2010. Uh, so Johnny, Donald, and Tim, welcome. Good to have you with us. Good to be here. So let me start. I'm going to start with you, Donald, and ask Tim a question and get right into this. I mean, 
one of the things I was when reading this was going on with oyster farmers having a difficult time breaking through the bureaucracy to to uh, to really build this industry in Maryland. I mean, it, isn't it true that really we don't have anything a, a real wild oyster population? That everything we have in the bay, even that the oystermen harvest, are things that you all raise in their seed beds and then put them implant them in the bay so we can have oysters. We, I mean, we've pretty much decimated our supply of oysters otherwise, right? Well, there there are still natural populations in the, in the bay, Mark, and uh, there is a public oyster season that still goes on, but it has declined precipitously over the years. When I first started with the university in the mid-'70s, we were harvesting 2.5 to 3 million bushels a year, and it's now down to about 400,000. Um, but uh, oyster aquaculture has been a... Um, a really growing uh, portion of this as we've uh, we've had science that has created uh, lines of oysters that survived the diseases that have um, brought us to the point we are uh, triploid technology that um, gives us oysters that don't spawn in the summertime so you get high meat quality year-round and um, many very innovative ways to raise oysters that we did not use uh, in the past such as those that uh, uh, Johnny Shockley and his uh, uh, company is using. So, Johnny, let's talk a bit about that. Cause, I mean, you were an oysterman for years, I mean, on the boat. But, I mean, the reality is to make a living at that, you have to do what you're doing, which is raise them. Talk about you know, the, your, your business and what you've done. Yeah, so what we've done um, is taken our experience as commercial fishermen and um, gone to the scientific community and and um, really looked in, in depth of what the science is around this new virginical oyster that we have here now now today to work with and created a hybrid system um, based on the old old culture and old, old waterman ways and um, coupled that with the high science um, that's been developed in the, in the last, let's say, 10, 15 years, but mainly, um, to create a system that um, could once again reestablish the oyster as um, the, the Chesapeake Bay as the world leader in oyster production based on sustainability. And I, and I think that, Tim, this, I mean, talk a bit about your article here. Because I think this is, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was as, as I go to the store to buy crab meat to make crab cakes or buy oysters uh, so we can shuck them and eat them. Um, it, it's the, most of them I'm, I'm buying aren't from Maryland anymore, period. Well, that's largely true. If you pop into a lot of restaurants, you're, if you, uh, you know, get oysters at the raw bar or whatever, uh, as often as not, they'll, they'll be from Virginia, which uh, has a much stronger tradition of, of aquaculture, much bigger industry. Uh, there are places, and a growing number of them in, in Maryland, in Baltimore and, and elsewhere, that, uh, and in Washington, that are serving Maryland uh, farmed oysters. Uh, and, and the industry is growing. I mean, the produced, I guess, according to the state, about 35,000 bushels last year, which is, uh, which is you know, not quite 10% of what the, the wild harvest was. It was around, as Don said, about 400,000. And that's, that's, that's an improvement over what it had been. It had been below 100,000 at one point, bushels of, of oysters. So, uh, so that, it, it, the wild harvest has, has improved a bit. The, uh, the aquaculture industry has, has grown a lot, but, uh, but it's, it's a fraction of what uh, is, is coming out of Virginia. So, um, the folks here in Maryland, uh, this was brought up at the meeting this week, uh, we're, we're suggesting, Johnny and, and others, suggesting that Maryland ought to take a, a harder look at what Virginia is doing uh, to nurture and sustain its uh, aquaculture, oyster aquaculture industry, and, and uh, maybe try to emulate it a bit more. So, uh, Johnny Shockley, what do you see as the problem? What's, what, what, what are the issues here for you? Um, so in the beginning, um, we just jumped into this about five years ago at the state level um, very enthusiastically um, and not really realizing the infrastructure that was going to be needed to um, be able to run the permits and, and take care of the applications that were going to come, come forth, um, which is a natural, you know, natural thing to happen. And then um, along with the state, you know, we have a, the, the permits have to go through the, the, the Army Corps of Engineers as a joint process, and in the beginning, it was a separate application, two separate applications, and eventually, very quickly, we were able to evolve a dual process, whereas the applicant could make just one application, and then those that application will go would um, be divided and go. Um, the plan to be would be to go through a dual process at the same in parallel, so that it came out the other end at the same time, and um, to. To make things quicker and, and um, you know more efficient. So, but um, 
I think I think the, one of the biggest problem is is that mm, the uh, Army Corps um, in, in Baltimore aren't wasn't prepared to 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 step back and and let the state have a free um, have take take the bull by the horn and and, and make the calls and. Um, so it was looked at from two different perspectives, one being the you know United States government level and then the other being at a state level and 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 not always being able to see eye to eye on what the decision should be um, really being very critical and um, about small details um, that should be um, not something that would hold up a a permit that's going to do the good of what the oyster industry could potentially do for the Chesapeake Bay and too much red tape you know just it's that, that seems to be the problem. So, Tim, let me ask you again. Let's start with you and go through go, where everybody here. There was this meeting that took place. Mm-hmm. Um, where everybody convened. Senator Ben Cardin was there, the Army Corps of Engineers, Department of Natural Resources from the state. So, um, so talk a bit about the bottleneck here what, and what happened at that meeting. Well, uh, Senator Cardin, I guess, uh, sort of brought these folks together, got the uh, state natural resources secretary and the uh, the new uh, commander of the Baltimore District of the uh, Army Corps, come out to Horn Point, uh, sort of in the heart of uh, the, you know, the eastern shores, uh, oyster aquaculture industry, and and, and meet with a, a handful of the uh, growers uh, from, from both Southern Maryland and the shore. Johnny was one of them. Uh, and uh, here they're uh, so, you know some some of the headaches and the problems they've run into, and it's it is a variety of things here. One of the things that sort of stuck out th- this is sort of the second time these sorts of complaints have come up. They were you know as Johnny was saying, there was a lot of complaints early on. There was an a, uh, an agreement, a, a push made to sort of streamline the regulations to have a combined application. They didn't have to you know go to the feds and to the state separately. Uh, and they did that part, but there's still, uh, you know, a fair amount of, of uh, delays and re- and lengthy reviews of various issues and uh, snags that can delay the applications for months and even years. Uh, and what and are those? Well, what are those? I mean, what what would make a person have to wait for four or five years or eight years to get a to have the right to grow oysters um, in a certain body of water? Oh, and those, that, that was, you know, there's an extreme case of a, a, a guy, Don Marsh, who's been trying yeah, to raise oysters in Ocean down City. In the, yeah. yeah, in the Ocean City area. Uh, and uh, he's encountered just, uh, you know, uh, a string of opposition from, uh, from, from waterfront landowners who, who, for a variety of reasons, don't want to see these operations uh, near their property or in front of their property. Uh, and, and he's wound up in court, I think, uh, two or three times uh, and, and had to go through uh, all this stuff. One of the other challenges is if you, as one of the uh, growers at the meeting pointed out, he actually tried to meet with landowners to satisfy their concerns and objections and tinker with the uh, boundaries of his, the lease that he was trying to get. And in doing that, uh, he altered the, you know, the actual, you know, uh, boundaries of the lease. And he was told he had to basically start all over again with his application, which was, was a little bit dumbfounding um, because he was trying to, you know, streamline, trying to make this easy so there wouldn't be a prolonged objections from from landowners in the process and uh, and he got he got caught another one of the things that happened the 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 feds and the state agreed on a so-called a general permit where you wouldn't have to go through and get very detailed review if your lease request was of a limited size but the size that they the threshold there for requiring detailed review is really pretty small it's like five acres for uh, for growing oysters in cages uh on the bottom or in floats on the water, as I recall, uh, if, if that's correct. And, um, and you know, that's that's just really sort of, uh, you know, not a very big operation if you're just leasing five acres. So, so Donald Webster, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about all these kind of why you think this, these all these roadblocks take place. I mean, um, it, it, and why it's always so difficult to get, to get things started. It sounds like a lot have to do with property owners who have the money to build ho- homes in the water and don't want to see that industry next door to them? Oh, it's, it's been very interesting. If I can go back and uh, look at the lease process, uh, Maryland really streamlined its leasing uh, program in um, 2009. Um, Governor O'Malley uh, went to the coastal bays in August of 2008, the MACO meeting, visited two shellfish farms, stood there and basically looked over towards Virginia and said, there's a $30 million a year industry over there and virtually nothing here. This needs to change. And we went back and uh, 
totally revised our um, our state leasing program um, and really made it uh, uh, very very good. It's basically use or lose if you're going to lease bottom, which belongs to all of the people of the state of Maryland. You have to use it productively. Um, but the state issues leases, and we have a very good process for um, making sure that they don't interfere with other users of the bay. Um, at the same time, the Corps of Engineers in this joint permit process has to issue a permit, and the two of those tend to be out of sync. Why? What do you mean uh, out of sync? Well, the, the state of Maryland requires uh, public notification, so people can see if there's a lease and they have an objection to it. Uh, there's a, a procedure that they can uh, go through for informational meetings and then hearings uh, with administrative law judges later on. So that is all taken care of at the state level. Then it goes to the Corps, and they do exactly the same thing. They put it on public notification again. So if you have people who take umbrage at uh, the fact that there'll be a lease somewhere, they basically have two two hits at it, and it can hold things up for uh, a number of years. Um, the core jurisdiction in these matters comes from the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1899 and Section 404 of the Clean Water Act. Uh, so they do have jurisdiction in this thing. Um, ideally, what I would love to see is a program like we operate with the Food and Drug Administration for shellfish sanitation. There is a national shellfish sanitation program to ensure that uh, uh, waters are classified, that the shellfish coming out of them are, uh, uh, are pure, they're, they're healthy. Um, the states develop a program under federal guidelines. Once that's approved, the state runs it. And then the feds just come in periodically and audit, um, audit that for oversight. That would seem to me to be a very logical way to proceed with uh, with a leasing program, so, and and Johnny, how do you see all this? I mean, you're the you, you and and the the men and women like you, who are trying to get this industry rolling. I mean, how do you see this? So um, the way I see it is, and 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 Don there is is the expert in in public policy. Um, I'm I'm looking things from the private sector, um, knowing knowing what it takes for a small business to be successful. Um, when, when, once you decide that you want to throw your hat in the ring and, and start a, an oyster growing operation, and you make and you apply for your permits and you fig, and you write your business plan and, and apply for your permits, um, it doesn't come. It, it's, it's you just can't accept that. Okay, well, you've got your permits in, and we've already made an investment, and we're we're trying to move forward in a, with a business plan. And you get a letter in the mail and says, well, you know, you got another six months to wait or another year to wait. It took, took us almost 18 months to get our first permit. We were one of the first ones to um, get a water column lease in the state of Maryland. So that was a little bit easier to accept. Um, after five years later, um, for these the, the new growers who are coming on board, it's much diff, much more difficult to accept that um, we're still in some situations, but not all. It is, I'm not... Don't get me wrong; it is getting getting better, but there's still a lot of room to to go here to, to get it to where it needs to be, so that um, we can be as agile as we were when I was, say, um, my late teens, early twenties, when all I had to do to get an oyster um, license is go down to the local courthouse and uh, with thirty-five dollars. Now I don't think that that's ever going, and I know it won't get it to that point with oyster permits and lease bottom. But in order for to grow an industry to what it was um, in the past, in 1870, worth $50 million and employing 30,000 people. Um, that potential of economics is, is here again today with the oyster on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, what we need is agility um, and nim a, a nimble process so that the entrepreneurs and these young watermen who want to get up and going and, and, and become a new, um, more progressive watermen on the Chesapeake Bay under sustainable production, we must get to the point where um, the red tape can be cut and we can make decisions that are based on common sense to make this process um, what it needs to be to for this industry to flourish. And I, I do want to say here that, that we, we asked the Baltimore or the Army Corps of Engineers and the Maryland Department of Natural Resources to join us, but both weren't able to provide 
representatives for the segment. So we did reach out to them to join in this conversation so we could have to hear from them about why this is so difficult to get going in our state and what the issues really are. Um, so um, I, I want to come back to something I said earlier, that, 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 that some of the roadblocks here and how real they are and what they mean and who's making these objections. I mean, um, it... it we may never see a wild oyster industry come back again. I mean, or not come back and take decades to even come close to what used to be in the state of Maryland and Chesapeake Bay. Um, at least that's what I think. And maybe Donald, you'll think that's wrong. Maybe you think it's right, but I think that, I think that's that's that that's going to be pretty hard to get back to. So that the farming is the way that you're going to keep oysters alive and kind of keep people who have been on the water making a living um, in the water, but. Doing being in the water in a different way, which is farming and raising the oysters that people bring out. So, what what are the real objections here? I mean, I, and I want I, I really want to understand that. I mean, the objections of people who might live on the water uh, in their house is not wanting that there. Are there are there environmental issues involved? Uh, in your article, Tim, you you mentioned um, questions of the the, the in, in endangered species like sea turtles in the Atlantic sturgeon that once populated the Chesapeake Bay, but they're very rarely there. Though I do know of a guy. Where one a, a two and a half foot sturgeon landed in his boat, mm-hmm. <laughs> and took a picture of it uh, when it leaped leaped into his boat on a river. But <laughs> um, so they're there, but they're just not there in the quantity. So what are the issues here, Tim? I mean, is there is it? Let me start with this one. Is there an environmental issue? Well, uh, you know, uh, sturgeon are endangered. Atlantic sturgeon and, and sea turtles, at least some of the species, are endangered as well. They they do still. Uh, appear in the bay, and there's there's some sign that sturgeon are are making a, a bit of a a comeback in some some parts of the bay. Um, you know, as such, we you know take it as law of the land that you protect uh, endangered species to see that they don't go extinct. Um, and and for that reason, you want to be careful that what you do in the water isn't going to uh, isn't going to hurt them or or drive them away or or, or you know uh, uh, diminish their ability to reproduce and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's it's you know it's not entirely clear how oyster aquaculture itself would affect that. Uh, I think one of the points that Johnny made at the uh, at the meeting uh, this week that was was kind of telling was he pointed out that as a waterman uh, he didn't face you know he was able to go out and crab and and fish uh, and and did not face the same kinds of scrutiny uh, in terms of what impacts they they may be having on uh, sea turtles and and sturgeon that that uh, that an uh, applicant for a Oyster lease or a, a permit to put oysters in the on the bottom uh, would face, and and that seemed to make uh, some some impact. Now whether they can you know find their way clear to, to streamline that review process too and take out the months long delay for that, um, you know perhaps it could be made part of a, a sort of a general review uh, again of the types of gear and that sort of thing. The other issue that that you know wasn't talked about at the meeting, but I, I know it it comes up. Uh, maybe it's not as as uh, rough as the uh, as the property owners, but there are some commercial fishermen who uh, who object to, uh, to to aquaculture and to oyster leases, and part of that stems from their uh, you know tradition of, of sort of basically in Maryland anyway having free roam of the bay, and uh, and not uh, appreciating the fact that that now uh, with the change in Maryland's law and policy, uh, large areas of the bay uh, are, are off limits as sanctuaries, and and also that. Uh, that uh, you know, a private uh, individual, uh, even many of them former watermen or still practicing watermen, uh, can go in and lease a section of the of the bay, uh, a bottom, and and grow oysters for their own uh, production and harvest there. And and so there's some objections to those. Some some of the objections are that it interferes with crabbing and clamming, and uh, and DNR uh, tries to uh, to sort through those. But they're they're you know those are the other sort of issues that that come up. But but let me go to Don and then back to Johnny here. I mean, but but, but I mean, the while Virginia may be more lax in environmental regulations than Maryland is, uh, there's a quote in in Tim's article in the Sun where he said um, he quoted uh, Patrick Hudson of the True Oyster Chesapeake Company, um, who's raising bivalves uh, at the bottom of the St. Jerome Creek in St. Mary's County. And the quote was, "We're not here building a dam. We're not building a power plant. We're putting oysters in the water. It's a good thing." Um, and oysters are the kind of natural way of cleansing the bay, and that's what their f- function was, other than human beings eating them and other things wanting to eat them, was that they did cleanse the bay. They made it. They made it. They made it whole again. So, Donald, isn't, I mean, isn't that isn't that a logical argument why we should ex- be expanding this industry beyond the fact that I like to eat them? <laughs> it is. It is indeed, Mark. Um, 
this is one of the few forms of aquaculture where you don't have to have an expense for feed. Um, in all you know, finfish aquaculture, that's a that's a significant input. Uh, they eat uh, the phytoplankton that has uh, is the result of the nutrient sediment running into the bay. They are very good at uh, biofiltration. They take in uh, uh, water that has the uh, all of this in it. The oyster actually separates the particles that it wants to eat, and then it takes the rest of uh, what it doesn't want to, it binds it into a mucus, it puts it at the bottom. So it has this, this uh, clarification process going on. Um, it's been very interesting. Um, we've got now about 4,500 acres that uh, have been leased under this new program. Out of how many possible acres? Do you know? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm not sure. That's uh, I, I don't know what that figure. We had at one point about 250,000 acres of charted natural oyster bars on the charts of, of Maryland. Most of those, about 90% of those are now gone. They've died out and been silted over. Um, but uh, watermen are a part of about two-thirds of the current leases. So a lot of them have gotten into this. Um, it has also brought people like entrepreneurs who've been in other businesses into this. I, it's it's really been fascinating to meet and work with a lot of the folks who've gotten into this industry. Most of the folks that you've talked with, um, well, both Johnny, uh, Patrick Hudson from True Chesapeake, many of these other growers who have gotten into this now want to expand their, their acreage. So they, they are doing... They're growing and they're becoming better at what they do. We're penetrating new markets. Uh, we're putting oysters on the uh, uh, on the market twelve months a year, where it was always a uh, you know very seasonal. We had to have our arm, and when you finish with the arm months, you were out of luck. But we're no longer out of luck. No, it's <laughs> you know it's, it's uh, one of our one of our growers was asked on a, a TV program recently. They said, uh, "Well, is, you know, what about this uh, thing that you can only eat oysters in <laughs> right. months with an R?" And uh, he said. They all have R in it. It stands for refrigeration. <laughs> you know, they're, they're treated very carefully. And, uh, you know, frankly, I thought when we started to rebuild the industry, it would be the old folks like me that were eating uh, oysters. <laughs> oh, man, they're, they're the new wine. They are, uh, you yeah. know, the raw bars of the place for the 20s and 30-somethings to go. Um, it's, it's really been fascinating watching this increase. If you talk about some of the um, uh, reluctance of people. Um, some of that is from property owners who... Uh, may see that there's a lease that's been applied for near their homes, and they may be inclined to think, you know, this is going to be uh, impact them visually, or they won't be able to uh, boat there. You really can't. I mean, in most all these areas, you can boat over, you can canoe, kayak, bird watch, fish. Um, right. You just can't remove gear or take the oysters. So, uh, and it's a very beneficial industry. All of our publications have three words on them. What's that? Economy. Employment, environment. Exactly, Johnny. I think that I mean, that says a lot of it, and and I think that this is one of those times when you know you can you can argue over all kinds of things whether we should be regulating bass and regulating taking crabs out of the water, regulating all that kind of stuff. But this is one instance where what you and others who grew up doing this and your family for generations, this makes sense. Yeah. So, um, what what I to put things in perspective. What, go ahead. What I like to do is is go back in the history on the oyster and this entire seafood industry here on the Chesapeake Bay. And it all started with oysters, you know, even back in the late 1700s. Um, by the mid-1800s, had um, hit a stride. And by 1870, it was a $50 million a year industry employing 30,000 people. Um, by the 1900s, um, probably about 50% of the entire stock had been taken out, and that's where things started going downhill. Once that happened, we had an infrastructure that was massive on the Chesapeake Bay based on the oysters, and we had to figure out how we were going to take that infrastructure and uh, and maintain it. And so we turned to other fisheries, such as the blue crab and, and the rockfish and things. Um, and, the, you know, we're, that brings us to today where we're at 1% on the oysters and, and um at a very, the blue crabs are in trouble. Um, we have some. We have some effective regulation around the harvesting of the of the rockfish. But right. Still, it's um, it's teeter totter. Um, what we have to do here now, at at the end of a 200 year revolution, is is start over again. 
and we need to start with the oyster, um, as we did in the beginning. And, and we need to do that based on sustainability and um, in order to reset the balances in all these other fisheries and bring the economics for, uh, focus back to the oyster as it was. Um, and and that's, the, that, that's going to be our new foundation. It's, it means everything to the, to the Chesapeake. We need to bring the focus to aquaculture um, and the oyster production so that the natural oyster is able to re- rebound. Um, and uh, by doing this in a and unilaterally, we'll be able to bring the oyster back as a keystone species environmentally and economically, which is everything to our bay and our state and our economy. So and that's, that's, in a nutshell, that's how important it is. And where do you want to take your business? Where do I want to where, take where it? Do you, I, mean, I mean, where do you see it? Where do you see the possibilities? Um, international possibilities. We, we, what we're doing here is building a model of what the oyster aquaculture industry could be worldwide based on our vast experience as commercial fishermen, uh, our knowledge of how to actually work on the water and, and how to do, uh, how to apply what our generations deep of heritage um, has learned. And, and now with the top science that we have here on the Mid-Atlantic and Chesapeake Bay and Maryland and Virginia, um, we can really take this thing to a place internationally um, that it's never been imagined before. Do, do you think, and before I turn back to, to Tim and Don as, as we wrap up a little bit here, do you think, Johnny, that, um, that your, your, your friends, your family, your brother and sister watermen out there, that this could be one of the things that transitions and allows people to survive and live on, on, on the water of the land by going into oyster farming? I think that this is a, a, a turning point in history um, as we speak today. Um, and the and the future of the Chesapeake Bay and the state of Maryland and other areas up and down all around on all three coasts around the country. From we're actually we've actually developed equipment in just the last five years right here on this and on this island um, based on our our knowledge of uh, of the seafood industry. Whereas we're we've got equipment um, in Alaska, we've got it on the out on the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, just deliver some equipment down. Um, air tunnel equipment down at Tallahassee Community College, down on the Gulf. We've had we got interest all the way across the Gulf, and and got uh, business contacts, and and not to mention all up and down the East Coast, um, based on what's what's happened here with our small company in just the last five years, and that's just um, just an example of the, of the uh, broad scope that we've been able to pull in, um, but really are focused here on the on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, you know, and, and growing this industry and, and, and tapping into the tremendous energy that's been um, created on the Chesapeake Bay through um, uh, the cultural en- uh, energy and also the environmental en- uh, energy of the Chesapeake Bay, figuring how we can tap into that and actually um, leverage it into um, a, a major part of the economy here on the Bay once again. You know, and, and Tim, we go to Tim and Donald as we wrap up in the next few, last few minutes we have here. And, you know, I think in that, that, um, that, that Donald, whether, whether one agrees or disagrees with Governor Hogan's politics or policies um, the, the, in, in, in many things, this is one time when this might be an opportune moment in this administration to open this up, talking about not wanting all these regulations burdening small business. Oh, I think that's true, and I think the, um, the Hogan administration has talked uh, about um, you know, economic development, and this certainly is that. I, I would point out, you know, we, we do have problems, and we are constantly looking at those and trying to solve them and make things better. In the past year, we've had two groups that have come to Maryland to learn what we've done and how we did it. One was a group of growers and government officials from Nova Scotia last July. Most recently in May, we had a Mississippi Governor's Initiative group that came here, and their report that came out uh, recently um, has a lot of uh, recommendations on paralleling what Maryland has done. Um, one closing comment for me, Tim mentioned uh, Virginia, which has a much larger uh, uh, oyster aquaculture industry, right. shellfish aquaculture industry, a lot of it's hard clams. Somebody asked me recently what my goal was for the Maryland industry. I said, beat Virginia. Very simple. Amen to that. A, a big target <laughs> and a constantly moving one. <laughs> and we, I think that's possible. I mean, Tim, well, sure this is, it really is possible. I think this is, a, this is really interesting as you, as you cover this, Tim. I'm curious that you're not, ask, not asking you to be prescient, but, but, but where you think this may take. What do you think is going to be the end result here? 
Well, I, I mean, the, for the for the moment, at least, the market appears to be there and growing. Uh, uh, you know, there's there's no shortage of demand for oysters. Uh, you know, I'm a uh, oysters are my favorite food as well. well no, no, this program is making me after, late this evening <laughs> on my way home, stopping to get a couple of beers and at least two dozen oysters to suck yeah. down. So, well, you'll find them somewhere <laughs> out there, and and that's what's uh, you know that's sort of what's 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 moving it. It's, you know, the question is, you know, is there a limit to this market? At least right now, I don't see it. Uh, you know, and, and oyster aquaculture in Maryland was, was practically moribund uh, 15 years ago when uh, at, the, at the, you know, bottom of the, uh, of the, the Bay's oysters when diseases had just ravaged everything. Uh, Virginia has about 100,000 acres under lease compared to 4,500, 4,400 under uh, here in Maryland. Uh, but, you know, we're sort of starting, for, starting over again, starting from scratch. And in some respects, you know, uh, that's where that innovation and uh, the enterprise of people like Johnny Shockley and Patrick Hudson and, and uh, others uh, comes in. There, there's, you know, there's plenty of old timers involved in this, but there's also some new blood and some new ideas. And, uh, and so it's, it's interesting and exciting to see, uh, to see what they're coming up with here. And uh, uh, the point about the, uh, the Hogan administration, obviously that's only part of the regulatory uh, Morass that they're having to deal with, but the, uh, the this is an opportunity for uh, you know for uh, regulatory reform. Well, Tim Wheeler, Porter Be More Green, Baltimore Sons of Armor Blog. Always great to have you on. Thank you so much for the article and for being part of this. Uh, Donald Webster, my pleasure, Chairman of the Aquaculture Coordinating Council of the Maryland Oyster Advisory Commission, who's the uh, regional uh, extension uh, specialist at the University of Maryland Wise Research and Education Center. Good to have you back with us, Don, and uh, Johnny Chocley. Uh, who Shockley, who is a third-generation waterman and uh, created Hooper's Island Oyster Aquaculture Company back in 2010. Great to hear your voice in the air. Johnny, thank you so much for joining us as well. You're welcome. Uh, thank you all. And let's Take go care. out and build this industry and have some oysters. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all. I'll remind you on the way out of here that uh, to join me uh, for an important event coming up next week in Baltimore, I'll be moderating a town hall meeting at Roland Park Elementary Middle School in Baltimore City next Wednesday, September 2nd, at 6 p.m., about testing in our schools. The panel will feature educators from Baltimore City and across the state. We want you to be part of that discussion, so reserve your seat. Go to MarylandEducators.com slash Testing Hall Town Hall. That is MarylandEducators.com slash Testing Town Hall. I am reserve your seat and join us with your voices to be heard about testing and over-testing our children. So I'm good to have you all with us here today on the Mark Steiner Show and Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions for the Center of Emerging Media made impossible by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer, Delmar of our public radio, is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Siana Greaves, Manifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's show to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast the Mark Steiner Show, share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.